respiratory physiology, lung volumes and capacity. Tidal volume is the volume inspired or expired with each normal breath. Inspiratory reserve volume is the volume that can be inspired over and above the tidal volume. The inspiratory reserve volume is used during exercise. Expiratory reserve volume is the volume that can be expired after the expiration of a tidal volume. Residual volume is the volume that remains in the lungs after max expiration and cannot be measured by spirometry. Dead space. Anatomic dead space is the volume of the conducting airways. Anatomic dead space is normally about 150 milliliters. Physiologic dead space. Physiologic dead space is a functional measurement. Physiologic dead space is defined as the volume of the lungs that does not participate in gas exchange. Physiologic dead space is about equal to the anatomic dead space in normal lungs. It may be greater than the anatomic dead space in lung diseases in which there are ventilation perfusion defects. Physiologic dead space is, following, is calculated by the following equation. Dead space is equal to tidal volume times alveolar gas CO2 minus expired air CO2 divided by alveolar gas CO2. In words, the equation states that physiologic dead space is the tidal volume multiplied by a fraction. The fraction represents the dilution of alveolar PCO2 by dead space air, which does not participate in gas exchange and does not therefore contribute to CO2, does not contribute CO2 to expired air. Ventilation rate. Minute ventilation is expressed as tidal volume times breaths per minute. Alveolar ventilation is expressed as tidal volume minus dead space times breath per minute. Inspiratory ca capacity is the sum of the tidal volume times and ears inspiratory reserve volume. Functional residual capacity is the sum of expiratory reserve volume and residual volume. FRC is the volume remaining in the lungs after a tidal volume is expired. FRC includes residual volume, so it cannot be measured by spirometry. Vital capacity or forced vital capacity is the sum of the tidal volume, inspiratory reserve volume, and expiratory reserve volume. Vital capacity is the volume of air that can be forcibly expired after max inspiration. Total lung capacity is the sum of all four lung volumes. Total lung capacity is the volume in the lungs after max inspiration. It includes residual volume, so it cannot be measured by spirometry. FEV1 is the volume of air that can be expired in the first second of a forced maximal expiration. FEV1 is normally 80% of the forced vital capacity, which is expressed as FEV1 over FEC equals 0.8. In obstructive lung disease such as asthma, FEV1 is reduced more than FEC, so the FEV1 to FEC ratio is decreased. In restrictive lung disease such as fibrosis, both FEV1 and FEC are reduced and FEV1 to FEC ratio is either normal or increased. Mechanics of breathing. Muscles of inspiration. The diaphragm is the most important muscle for inspiration. When the diaphragm contracts, the Abdominal contents are pushed down and the ribs are lifted up and out, increasing the volume of the thoracic cavity. External intercostals and accessory muscles are not used for inspiration during normal quiet breathing. These muscles are used during exercise and in respiratory distress. 
Muscles of expiration. Expiration is normally passive. Because the lung chest wall system is elastic, it returns to its resting position after inspiration. Expiratory muscles are used during exercise or when airway resistance is increased because of disease such as asthma. Abdominal muscles compress the abdominal cavity, pushing the diaphragm up and pushing air out of the lungs. Internal intercostal muscles pull the ribs down and in. Compliance of the respiratory system is described by the following equation. Compliance equals volume over pressure. Compliance describes the distensibility of the lungs in the chest wall. Compliance is inversely, inversely related to elastance, which depends on the amount of elastic tissue. Compliance is inversely related to stiffness. Compliance of the respiratory system is the slope of the pressure volume curve. Compliance is the change in volume for a given change in pressure. Pressure refers to transmural or transpulmonary pressure, i.e. the pressure difference across the pulmonary structures. Compliance of the lungs. Transmural pressure is alveolar pressure minus intrapleural pressure. When the pressures outside the lungs, i.e. intrapleural pressure, is negative, the lungs expand and lung volume increases. When the pressure outside the lungs is positive, the lungs collapse and lung volume decreases. Inflation of the lungs, such as an in inspiration, follows a different curve than deflation of the lungs in expiration. This difference is called hysteresis. In the middle range of pressures, compliance is greatest and the lungs are most distensible. At high expanding pressures, compliance is lowest, the lungs are least distensible, and the curve flattens. Compliance of the combined lung-chest wall system. The figure shows the pressure volume relationships for the lungs alone. Hysteresis has been eliminated for simplicity. The chest wall alone and the lungs and chest wall together. Compliance of the lung-chest wall system is less than that of the lungs alone or the chest wall alone i.e. the slope is flatter. At rest, identified by the filled circle in the center, lung volume is at FRC, and the pressure in the airways and the lung is equal to atmospheric pressure, i.e. zero. Under these equilibrium conditions, there is a collapsing force on the lungs and an expanding force on the chest wall. At FRC, these two forces are equal and opposite, and therefore the combined lung-chest wall system neither wants to collapse nor expand, i.e. equilibrium. As a result, these two opposing forces, as a result of these two opposing forces, intrapleural pressure is negative or subatmospheric. If air is introduced to the intrapleural space in a pneumothorax, the intrapleural pressure becomes equal to atmospheric pressure. The lungs will collapse, their natural tendency, and the chest wall will spring outward, its natural tendency. Changes in lung compliance. In a patient with emphysema, lung compliance is increased and the tendency of the lungs to collapse is decreased. Therefore, at the original FRC, the tendency of the lungs to collapse is less than the tendency of the chest wall to expand. The lung chest wall system will seek a new higher FRC so that the two opposing forces can be balanced. The patient, patient's chest becomes barrel shaped reflecting this higher volume. In a patient with fibrosis, lung compliance is decreased and the tendency of the lungs to collapse is increased. Therefore, at the original FRC, the tendency of the lungs to collapse is greater than the tendency of the chest wall to expand. The lung chest wall system will seek a new lower FRC so that the two opposing forces can be balanced. Surface tension of the alveoli and surfactant. 
Surface tension of the alveoli results from the attractive forces between liquid molecules lining the alveoli. This creates a collapsing pressure that is directly proportional to surface tension and inversely proportional to alveolar radius. This is Laplace's law. Collapsing pressure on the alveolus, or pressure required to keep the alveolus open, is equal to 2 times the surface tension divided by the radius of the alveoli. Large alveoli have low collapsing pressures and are easy to open. Small alveoli have high collapsing pressures and are more difficult to keep open. In the absence of surfactant, the small alveoli have a tendency to collapse and cause atelectasis. Surfactant lines the alveoli. Surfactant reduces surface tension by disrupting the intermolecular forces between lipid molecules. This reduction in surface tension prevents small alveoli from collapsing and increasing compliance, and increases compliance. So, sur so surfactant increases compliance by reducing surface tension. Surfactant is synthesized by type 2 alveolar cells and consists primarily of the phospholipid dipalmidol phosphatylidocholine, or DPPC. Relationships between pressure, airflow, and resistance are analogous to the relationships between blood pressure, blood flow, and resistance in the cardiovascular system. Airflow is driven by and is directly proportional to the pressure difference between mouth or nose and the alveoli. Airflow is inversely proportional to airway resistance. Thus, the higher the airway resistance, the lower the airflow. The inverse relationship is shown in the following equation. Airflow is equal to pressure gradient, or delta P, divided by airway resistance. Resistance of the airways is described by Pascal's law, as shown in the following equation. Resistance is equal to 8 times the viscosity of the inspired gas times the length of the airway, divided by pi times the radius of the airway to the fourth power. Notice the powerful inverse fourth power relationship between resistance and the size or radius of the airway. For example, if airway radius decreases by a factor of 4, then resistance will increase by a factor of 4 to the 4th power, or 256, and airflow will decrease by a factor of 256. Factors that change airway resistance The major site of airway resistance is the medium-sized bronchi. The smallest airways would seem to offer the highest resistance, but they do not because of their parallel arrangement. Contraction or relaxation of bronchial smooth muscle changes airway resistance by altering the radius of the airways. Parasympathetic stimulation, irritants, and the slow-reacting substance of anaphylaxis, or asthma, constrict the airways, decrease the radius, and increase the resistance to airflow. Sympathetic stimulation and sympathetic agonists, such as isoprotanerol, dilate the airways via beta-2 receptors, increase the radius, and decrease the resistance to airflow. Lung volume alters airway resistance because of the radial traction exerted on the airways by surrounding lung tissue. High lung volumes are associated with greater traction and decreased airway resistance. Patients with increased airway resistance, such as those with asthma, learn to breathe at higher lung volumes to offset the high airway resistance associated with their disease. Low lung volumes are associated with less traction and increased airway resistance, even to the point of airway collapse. Viscosity or density of inspired gas changes the resistance to airflow. During a deep sea dive, both air density and resistance to airflow are increased. Breathing a low density gas, such as helium, reduces the resistance to airflow. 
breathing cycle. At rest, or before inspiration begins, alveolar pressure equals atmospheric pressure. Because lung pressures are expressed relative to atmospheric pressure, alveolar pressure is said to be zero. Interpleural pressure is negative at rest. The opposing forces of the lung trying to collapse and the chest wall trying to expand create a negative pressure in the interpleural space between them. Interpolar pressure can be measured by a balloon catheter in the esophagus. At rest, lung volume is the FRC, or functional residual capacity. During inspiration, the inspiratory muscles contract and cause the volume of the thorax to increase. As lung volume increases, alveolar pressure decreases to lessen atmospheric pressure. The pressure gradient between the atmosphere and the alveoli now causes air to flow into the lungs. Airflow will continue until the pressure gradient dissipates. During inspiration, intrapleural pressure becomes more negative. Because lung volume increases during inspiration, the elastic recoil strength of the lungs also increases. As a result, intrapleural pressure becomes even more negative than it was at rest. Changes in intrapleural pressure during inspiration are used to measure the dynamic compliance of the lungs. During inspiration, lung volume increases by one tidal volume. At the peak of inspiration, lung volume is the functional residual capacity plus one tidal volume. During expiration, alveolar pressure becomes greater than atmospheric pressure. The alveolar pressure becomes greater, i.e. becomes positive, because alveolar gas is compressed by the elastic forces of the lung. Thus, alveolar pressure is now higher than atmospheric pressure. The pressure gradient is reversed and air flows out of the lungs. During expiration, intrapleural pressure returns to its resting value during normal passive expiration. However, during a forced expiration, intrapleural pressure actually becomes positive. This positive intrapleural pressure compresses the airways and makes expiration more difficult. In COPD, in which airway resistance is increased, patients learned how to expire slowly with pursed lips to prevent the airway collapse that may occur with forced expiration. During expiration, lung volumes return to FRC. Lung diseases. Asthma is an obstructive disease in which expiration is impaired. Asthma is characterized by decreased FEC, decreased FEV1, and decreased FEV1-FEC ratio. Air that should have been expired is not, leading to air trapping and increased FRC. COPD is a combination of chronic bronchitis and emphysema. COPD is an obstructive disease with increased lung compliance in which expiration is impaired. COPD is characterized by decreased FEC, decreased FEV1, and decreased FEV1 to FEC ratio. Air that should have been expired is not, leading to air dropping, increased FRC, and a barrel-shaped chest. Pink puffers, primarily emphysema, have mild hypoxemia and, because they maintain alveolar ventilation, normal capnia. Blue bloaters, primarily those with bronchitis, have severe hypoxemia with cyanosis and because they do not maintain alveolar ventilation, hypercapnia. They have right ventricular failure and systemic edema. Fibrosis is a restrictive disease with decreased lung compliance in which inspiration is impaired. Fibrosis is characterized by a decrease in all lung volumes. 
Because FEV1 is decreased less than FEC, FEV1 to FEC ratio is increased or may be normal. Gas exchange. Dalton's law of partial pressures can be expressed by the following equation. Partial pressure is equal to total pressure times fractional gas concentration. In dry inspired air, the partial pressure of oxygen can be calculated by as follows. Assume that the total pressure is atmospheric and the fractional concentration of oxygen is 0.21. Partial pressure of oxygen is equal to 760 millimeters of mercury times 0.21, which is equals 160 millimeters of mercury. In humidified tracheal air at the 37 degrees Celsius, the calculation is modified to correct for the partial pressure of water, which is 47, to 47 millimeters of mercury. 760 minus 47 millimeters of mercury equals 713 millimeters of mercury. 713 times 0.21 is equal to 150 millimeters of mercury, which is a new partial pressure of oxygen in humidified tracheal air. Partial pressures of oxygen and carbon dioxide in inspired air, alveolar air, and blood. About 2% <clears throat> 2 of the systemic cardiac output bypasses the pulmonary circula circulation, which is a physiologic shunt. The resulting admixture of venous blood with oxygenated arterial blood makes the PO2 of arterial blood slightly lower than alveolar air. The amount of gas dissolved in a solution, such as blood, is proportional to its partial pressure. The units of concentration for dissolved gas are milliliters of gas per 100 milliliters of blood. The following calculation uses oxygen in arterial blood as an example. Dissolved concentration of oxygen is equal to PO2 times the solubility of oxygen in blood. So, dissolved concentration of oxygen is equal to 100 millimeters of mercury times 0.03 milliliters of oxygen per liter per milliliter of mercury is equal to 0.3 milliliters of oxygen per 100 milliliters of blood. The diffusion rates of oxygen and carbon dioxide depend on the partial pressure differences across the membrane and the area available for diffusion. For example, the diffusion of oxygen from alveolar air into the pulmonary capillary depends on the partial pressure difference for oxygen between alveolar air and pulmonary capillary blood. Normally, capillary blood equilibrates with alveolar gas when the partial pressures of oxygen become equal. Then there is no net diffusion of oxygen. Perfusion limited exchange is illustrated by nitrous oxide and oxygen under normal conditions. In perfusion limited exchange, the gas equilibrates early along the length of the pulmonary capillary. The partial pressure of the gas in arterial blood becomes equal to the partial pressure in alveolar air. Thus, for a perfusion limited process, diffusion of the gas can be increased only if blood flow increases. Diffusion limited exchange is illustrated by carbon monoxide and by oxygen during strenuous exercise. Diffusion limited exchange is also illustrated in disease states. In fibrosis, the diffusion of oxygen is restricted because thickening of alveolar membrane increases diffusion distance. In emphysema, the diffusion of oxygen is decreased because the surface area of diffusion of gases is decreased. In diffusion limited exchange, the gas does not equilibrate by the time blood reaches the end of the pulmonary capillary. The partial pressure difference of the gas between alveolar air and pulmonary capillary blood is maintained. Diffusion continues along as long as the partial pressure gradient is maintained. In diffusion-limited gas exchange, the gas does not equilibrate by the time the blood reaches the end of the pulmonary capillary. 
The partial pressure difference of the gas between alveolar air and pulmonary capillary blood is maintained. Diffusion continues as long as partial pressure gradient is maintained. PO2 in dry inspired air is 160 millimeters of mercury. PO2 in humidified tracheal air is 150 millimeters of mercury because the addition of water decreases PO2. PO2 in alveolar air is 100 millimeters of mercury. Oxygen has diffused from alveolar air into the pulmonary capillary blood, decreasing the PO2 of alveolar air. In systemic arterial blood, PO2 is about 100. Blood has equilibrated with alveolar air and is arterialized. In mixed venous blood, PO2 is 40. Oxygen has diffused from arterial blood into the tissues, decreasing the PO2 of venous blood. PCO2 in dry inspired air is zero. PCO2 in humidified tracheal air is also zero. In alveolar air, PCO2 is 40. CO2 has been added from pulmonary capillary blood into the alveolar air. In systemic arterial blood, PCO2 is also 40. Blood has equilibrated with alveolar air. In mixed venous blood, PCO2 is about 46. CO2 has diffused from the tissues into the venous blood, increasing the PCO2 of venous blood. Oxygen transport. Oxygen is carried in blood in two forms, dissolved or bound to hemoglobin, which is the most important. Hemoglobin, as, at its normal concentration, increases the oxygen carrying capacity of blood 70-fold. Each subunit of hemoglobin contains a hemoiety, which is iron-containing porphyrin. The iron, in, the iron is in the ferrous state, Fe2+, which binds oxygen. Each subunit has a polypeptide chain. Two of the subunits have an alpha chain, and two of the subunits have a beta chain. Thus, normal adult hemoglobin is called alpha-2, beta-2. Fetal hemoglobin. In fetal hemoglobin, the beta chains are replaced by gamma chains. Thus, fetal hemoglobin is called alpha-2, gamma-2. The oxygen affinity of fetal hemoglobin is higher than the oxygen affinity of adult hemoglobin. There is a left shift of the curve because the 2,3 DPG binds less avidly. Because the oxygen affinity of fetal hemoglobin is higher than the oxygen affinity of adult hemoglobin, oxygen movement from mother to fetus is facilitated. In met hemoglobin, iron is in the ferric state, or Fe3+. This iron does not bind oxygen. Hemoglobin S causes sickle cell disease. Two beta chains are replaced by two gamma chains. In the deoxygenated form, deoxyhemoglobin forms sickle-shaped rods that deform red blood cells. Oxygen binding capacity of blood is the maximum amount of oxygen that can be bound to hemoglobin in the blood. It is dependent on the hemoglobin concentration in the blood. Oxygen binding capacity limits the amount of oxygen that can be carried in the blood. It is measured at 100% saturation. Oxygen content of the blood is the total amount of oxygen carried in blood, including both bound and dissolved oxygen. Oxygen content of the blood depends on the hemoglobin concentration, the PO2, and the P50 of hemoglobin. Oxygen content of blood is given by the following equation. Oxygen content is equal to oxygen binding capacity times percent saturation plus dissolved O2. Oxygen binding capacity is the max amount of oxygen bound to hemoglobin at 100% saturation. Oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve.
Hemoglobin combines rapidly and reversibly with oxygen to form oxyhemoglobin. The hemoglobin oxy oxygen dissociation curve is a plot of percent saturation of hemoglobin as a function of PO2. At a PO2 of 100, e.g. arterial blood, hemoglobin is 100% saturated. Oxygen is bound to all four heme groups, heme groups on all hemoglobin molecules. At a PO2 of 40, e.g. mixed venous blood, hemoglobin is 75% saturated, which means that on average, three of the four heme groups on each hemoglobin molecule have oxygen bound. At a PO2 of 25 millimeters of mercury, hemoglobin is 50% saturated. The PO2 at 50% saturation is the P50. 50% saturation means that on average, two of the four heme groups of each hemoglobin molecule have oxygen bound. The sigmoid shape of the curve is the result of a change in the affinity of hemoglobin as each successive oxygen molecule binds to a heme site called positive cooperativity. Binding of the first oxygen molecule increases the affinity for the second molecule and so forth. The affinity for the fourth oxygen molecule is the highest. This change in affin affinity facilitates the loading of oxygen in the lungs, the flat portion of the curve, and the unloading of oxygen at the tissues, the steep portion of the curve. In the lungs, alveolar gas has a PO2 of 100. Pulmonary capillary blood is arterialized by diffusion of oxygen from alveolar gas into the blood, so that the PO2 of pulmonary capillary blood also becomes 100. The very high affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen at a PO2 of 100 facilitates the diffusion process. By tightly binding oxygen, the free oxygen concentration and oxygen partial pressures are kept low, thus maintaining the partial pressure gradient that drives the diffusion of oxygen. The curve is almost flat when PO2 is between 60 and 100. Thus, humans can tolerate changes in atmospheric pressure and PO2 without compromising the oxygen-carrying capacity of hemoglobin. In the peripheral tissues, oxygen diffuses from arterial blood to the cells. The gradient for oxygen diffusion is maintained because the cells consume oxygen for aerobic metabolism, keeping the tissue PO2 low. The lower affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen in the steep portion of the curve facilitates the unloading of oxygen to the tissues. Changes in the hemoglobin oxygen curve. Shifts to the right occur when the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen is decreased. The P50 is increased and unloading of oxygen from the arterial blood to tissues is facilitated. For any level of PO2, the percent saturation of hemoglobin is decreased. Increases in PCO2 or decreases in pH shift the curve to the right, decreasing the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen and facilitating the unloading of oxygen to the tissues. This is called the Bohr effect. For example, during exercise, the tissues produce more CO2, which decreases tissue pH, and therefore the Bohr effect stimulates oxygen delivery to the exercising tissue. Increases in temperature, such as during exercise, shift the curve to the right. The shift to the right decreases affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen and facilitates the delivery of oxygen to the tissues during this period of high demand. Increases in 2,3 DPG concentration shift the curve to the right by binding to the beta chains of deoxyhemoglobin and decreasing the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen. The adaptation to chronic hypoxia, such as living at high altitude, increases 
includes increased synthesis of 2,3-DPG, which binds to hemoglobin and facilitates unloading of oxygen in the tissues. Shifts to the left of the curve occur when the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen is increased. The P50 is decreased and unloading of oxygen from arterial blood into the tissues is more difficult. For any level of PO2, the percent saturation of hemoglobin is increased. Causes of a shift to the left are the mirror image of those that cause a shift to the right. It includes decreased PCO2, increased pH, decreased temperature, and decreased 2,3-DPG concentration. Fetal hemoglobin does not bind 2,3-DPG as strongly as adult hemoglobin. Decreased binding of 2,3-DPG results in an increased affinity of hemoglobin F for oxygen, decreased P50, and a shift of the curve to the left. Carbon monoxide poisoning competes for oxygen binding sites on hemoglobin. The affinity of hemoglobin for carbon monoxide is 200 times its affinity for oxygen. Carbon monoxide occupies oxygen binding sites on hemoglobin, thus decreasing the oxygen content of the blood. In addition, binding of carbon monoxide to hemoglobin increases the affinity of remaining sites for oxygen, causing a shift of the curve to the left. Hypoxemia is a decrease in arterial PO2. An A to A gradient can be used to compare causes of hypoxemia and is decreased by the following is described by the following equation. The A to A gradient is equal to alveolar PO2 minus arterial PO2. Alveolar PO2 is calculated from the alveolar gas equation such as follows. Alveolar PO2 is equal to inspired PO2 minus alveolar PO2 divided by the respiratory quotient. The normal A to A gradient is less than 10 millimeters of mercury. Since oxygen normally equilibrates between alveolar gas and arterial blood, alveolar oxygen partial pressure is a part approximately equal to arterial oxygen partial pressure. The A to A gradient is increased if oxygen does not equilibrate between alveolar gas and arterial blood, such as in a diffusion defect, VQ defect, or right to left shunt. Causes of hypoxemia include high altitude from a decreased PaO2 and a normal A to A gradient, hypoventilation from a decreased PaO2 and normal A to A gradient, diffusion defects such as fibrosis with decreased PaO2 and an increased A to A gradient, VQ defect with decreased PaO2 and increased A to A gradient, and right to left shunt with decreased PaO2 and increased A to A gradient. Hypoxia is decreased oxygen delivery to the tissues. Oxygen delivery is described by the following equation. Oxygen delivery equals cardiac output times oxygen content of the blood. Oxygen content of the blood depends on hemoglobin concentration, oxygen binding capacity of hemoglobin, and percent saturation of hemoglobin by oxygen, which depends on PO2. Thus, hypoxia can be described Thus, hypoxia can be caused by a decrease in cardiac output, decreased oxygen binding capacity of hemoglobin, or decreased arterial PO2. Carbon dioxide transport. Forms of carbon dioxide in the blood. Carbon dioxide is produced in the tissues and carried to the lungs in the venous blood in three forms. Dissolved as CO2, which is in free solution, carbamina hemoglobin, which is carbon dioxide bound to hemoglobin, and finally bicarbonate from hydration of CO2 in the red blood cells, which is the major form. 
90%. To go back a little, causes of hypoxia include decreased cardiac output from decreased blood flow. Hypoxemia from decreased PO2 causes decreased percent saturation of hemoglobin. Anemia causes decreased hemoglobin concentration, which causes decreased oxygen content of the blood. Carbon monoxide poisoning causes decreased oxygen content of the blood, and cyanide poisoning causes decreased oxygen utilization by the tissues. Transport of carbon dioxide and bicarbonate. Carbon dioxide is generated in the tissues and diffuses freely into the venous plasma and then into the RBCs. In the RBCs, carbon dioxide combines with water to form H2CO3, a reaction that is catalyzed by carbonic anhydrase. H2CO3 dissociates into hydrogen and bicarbonate. Bicarbonate leaves the RBCs in exchange for chloride, known as the chloride shift, and is transported to the lungs in the plasma. Bicarbonate is the major form in which carbon dioxide is transported in the lungs. Hydrogen is buffered inside the RBCs by deoxyhemoglobin. Because deoxyhemoglobin is a better buffer for hydrogen than is oxyhemoglobin, it is advantageous that hemoglobin has been deoxygenated by the time blood reaches the venous end of the capillaries, i.e. the site where carbon dioxide is being added. In the lungs, all of the above reactions occur in reverse. Bicarb enters the RBCs in exchange for chloride. Bicarb recombines with hydrogen to form H2CO3, which decomposes into carbon dioxide and water. Thus, carbon dioxide, originally generated into the tissues, is expired. Pressures and cardiac output in the pulmonary circulation. Pressures are much lower in the pulmonary circulation than in systemic circulation. For example, pulmonary arterial pressure is about 15 millimeters of mercury, compared with aortic pressure of 100 millimeters of mercury. Resistance is also much lower in the pulmonary circulation than in the systemic circulation. Cardiac output of the right ventricle is pulmonary blood flow. Cardiac output of the right ventricle is equal to cardiac output of the left ventricle. Although pressures in the pulmonary circulation are low, they are sufficient to pump the cardiac output because resistance of pulmonary circulation is proportionally low. Distribution of pulmonary blood flow. When a person is supine, blood flow is nearly uniform throughout the lung. When a person is standing, blood flow is unevenly distributed because of the effect of gravity. Blood flow is the lowest at the apex of the lung, which is zone one, and the highest at the base of the lung, which is zone three. Zone 1, blood flow is the lowest. In zone 1, alveolar pressure is greater than arterial pressure, which is greater than venous pressure. The high alveolar pressure may compress the capillaries and reduce blood flow in zone 1. This situation can occur if arterial blood pressure is decreased as a result of hemorrhage or if, arterial, or if alveolar pressure is increased because of positive pressure ventilation. Zone 2, blood flow is medium. Arterial pressure is greater than alveolar pressure, but greater than venous pressure. Moving down the lung, arterial pressure progressively increases because of gravitational effects on hydrostatic pressure. Arterial pressure is greater than alveolar pressure in zone 2, and blood flow is driven by the difference between arterial pressure and alveolar pressure. Zone 3 is where blood flow is the highest. Arterial pressure is greater than venous pressure is greater than alveolar pressure. Moving down toward the base of the lung, arterial pressure is the highest because of gravitational effects and venous pressure finally increases to the point where it exceeds alveolar pressure. 
In zone 3, blood flow is driven by the difference between arterial and venous pressures, as in most vascular beds. In zone 1, blood flow is the lowest, ventilation is low, VQ ratio is high, PO2 is high, and PCO2 is low. In zone 3, flow is very high, ventilation is high, VQ ratio is low, PO2 is low, and PCO2 is high. Regulation of pulmonary blood flow. In the lungs, hypoxia causes vasoconstriction. This response is the opposite of that in organs, where hypoxia causes vasodilation. Physiologically, this effect is important because local vasoconstriction redirects blood flow away from poorly ventilated hypoxic regions of the blood and toward well-ventilated regions. Fetal pulmonary vascular resistance is very high because of generalized hypoxic vasoconstriction. As a result, blood flow through the fetal lungs is low. With the first breath, the alveoli of the neonate are oxygenated, pulmonary vascular resistance decreases, and pulmonary blood flow increases and becomes equal to cardiac output, as occurs in the adult. Shunts. Right to left shunt normally occurs to a small extent because 2% of cardiac output bypasses the lungs. Right to left shunts may be as great as 50% of cardiac output in certain congenital abnormalities. Right-to-left shunts are seen in Tetralogy of Fallot. Right-to-left shunts always result in a decrease in arterial PO2 because of the admixture of venous blood with arterial blood. The magnitude of a right-to-left shunt can be estimated by having the patient breathe 100% oxygen and measuring the degree of dilution-oxygenated arterial blood by non-oxygenated shunted venous blood. Left-to-right shunts are more common than right-to-left shunts. Left-to-right shunts are more common than right-to-left shunts because pressures are higher on the left side of the heart. Left-to-right shunts are usually caused by congenital abnormalities such as patent ductus, arteriosis, or traumatic injury. Left-to-right shunts do not result in a decrease in arterial PO2. Instead, PO2 will be elevated on the right side of the heart because there has been an admixture of arterial blood with venous blood. VQ defects. VQ ratio is the ratio of alveolar ventilation to pulmonary blood flow. Ventilation and perfusion matching is important to achieve the ideal exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. If the frequency, tidal volume, and cardiac output are normal, the VQ ratio is about 0.8. This VQ ratio results in arterial PO2 of 100 and an arterial PCO2 of 40. VQ ratios in different parts of the lung. Both ventilation and blood flow are non-uniformly distributed in the normal upright lung. Blood flow is the lowest at the apex and highest at the base because of gravitational effects. Ventilation is lower at the apex and higher at the base because the regional differences for ventilation, but the regional differences for ventilation are not as great as for perfusion. Therefore, the VQ ratio is higher at the apex of the lung and lower at the base of the lung. As a result of the regional differences in VQ ratio, there are corresponding differences in the efficiency of gas exchange in the resulting pulmonary capillary PO2 and PCO2. Regional differences for PO2 are greater than those for PCO2. At the apex, higher VQ, PO2 is the highest and PCO2 is lower because gas exchange is more efficient. At the base, lower VQ, PO2 is lowest, and PCO2 is higher because gas exchange is less efficient. Changes in VQ ratio. 
VQ ratio in the airway, VQ ratio and airway obstruction. If the airways are completely blocked, such as by a piece of stake caught in the trachea, then ventilation is zero. If blood flow is normal, then VQ is zero, which is called a shunt. There is no gas exchange in a lung that is perfused but not ventilated. The PO2 and PCO2 of pulmonary capillary blood and therefore systemic arterial blood will approach their values in mixed venous blood. There is an increase in the A to A gradient. VQ ratio in pulmonary embolism. If blood flow to a lung is completely blocked, such as by an embolism including a pulmonary artery, then blood flow to the lung is zero. If ventilation is normal, then VQ is infinite, which is called dead space. There is no gas exchange in the lung that is ventilated but not perfused. The PO2 and PCO2 of alveolar gas will approach their values in inspired air. VQ characteristics of different areas of the lung. In the apex of the lung, blood flow is the lowest, ventilation is lower, VQ ratio is higher, regional arterial PO2 is higher or highest, and regional arterial PCO2 is lower. In the base, blood flow is the highest, ventilation is higher, VQ ratio is lower, regional arterial PO2 is lowest, and regional arterial PCO2 is higher. Control of breathing. Sensory information is coordinated in the brainstem. Sensory information includes PCO2, lung stretch, irritants, muscle spindles, tendons, and joints. The output of the brainstem controls the respiratory muscles and the breathing cycle. Central control of breathing in the brainstem and cerebral cortex. The medullary respiratory center is located in the reticular foramen. The dorsal respiratory group is primarily responsible for inspiration and generates the basic rhythm for breathing. Input to the DRG comes from the vagus and glossopharyngeal nerves. The vagus nerve relays information from peripheral chemoreceptors and mechanical receptors in the lung. The glossopharyngeal nerve relays information from peripheral chemoreceptors. Output from the dorsal respiratory groups travels via the phrenic nerve to the diaphragm. The ventral respiratory group is primarily responsible for expiration. VRG is not active during normal quiet breathing when expiration is passive. VRG or ventral respiratory group is activated during exercise when expiration becomes an active process. The apneustic center is located in the lower pons. The apneustic center stimulates inspiration, producing deep and prolonged inspiratory gasp, which is called apneusis. The pneumotaxic center is located in the upper pons. The pneumotaxic center inhibits inspiration and therefore regulates inspiratory volume and respiratory rate. The cerebral cortex. Breathing can be controlled under voluntary control. Therefore, a person can voluntarily hyperventilate or hypoventilate. Hypoventilation or breath holding is limited by the resulting increase in PCO2 and decrease in PO2. A previous period of hyperventilation extends the period of breath holding. Chemoreceptors for carbon dioxide, hydrogen, and oxygen. Central chemoreceptors in the medulla are sensitive to the pH of the cerebral spinal fluid. Decreases in the pH of the cerebral spinal fluid produce increases in the breathing rate, or hyperventilation. Hydrogen does not cross the blood-brain barrier as well as CO2 does. CO2 diffuses from arterial blood into the CSF because CO2 is lipid-soluble and readily crosses the blood-brain barrier. In the CSF, 
carbon dioxide combines with, uh, with water to produce hydrogen and bicarbonate. The resulting hydrogen ion acts directly on the central chemoreceptors. Thus, increases in PO, PCO2 and hydrogen ion concentration stimulate breathing and decreases inhibit breathing. The resulting hyperventilation or hypoventilation then returns the arterial PCO2 towards normal. Peripheral chemoreceptors in the carotid and aortic bodies. The carotid bodies are located at the bifurcation of the common carotid arteries. The aortic bodies are placed are located above and below the aortic arch. Decreases in arterial PO2 stimulate the peripheral chemoreceptors and increase breathing rate. PO2 must decrease to low levels or less than 60 millimeters of mercury before breathing is stimulated. When PO2 is less than 60, breathing rate is exquisitely sensitive to PO2. Increases in arterial PCO2 stimulate peripheral chemoreceptors and increase the breathing rate. Increases in arterial PCO2 potentiate the stimulation of breathing caused by hypoxemia. The response of peripheral chemoreceptors to CO2 is less important than the response of central chemoreceptors to carbon dioxide or hydrogen ion concentration. Increases in arterial hydrogen ion concentration stimulate the carotid body peripheral chemoreceptors directly, independent of changes in PCO2. In metabolic acidosis, the breathing rate is increased, or hyperventilation, because arterial hydrogen ion concentration is increased and pH is decreased. Other types of receptors for control of breathing include the lung stress receptors, which are located in the smooth muscle of the airways. The lung stress receptors are located in the smooth muscle of the airways. When these receptors are stimulated by distension of the lungs, they produce a reflex which decreases breathing frequency, called the Herring-Brewer reflex. Irritant receptors are located between the airway epithelial cells and are stimulated by noxious substances such as dust and pollen. Juxtacapillary receptors, or J receptors, are located in the alveolar walls close to the capillaries. Engorgement of the pulmonary capillaries, such as that which may occur with left heart failure, stimulates the J receptors, which then cause rapid shallow breathing. Joint and muscle receptors are activated during movement of the limbs. Joint and muscle receptors are involved in early stimulation of breathing during exercise.